Welcome to Talk. It's Jericho, the pot of thunder and rock and roll. And wait till you hear the guest I have today. Actually, it's two guests. You guys already know Jesse Fink, author, journalist. He was on Talk is Jericho a few years ago, talking about the life and death of ACDC's Bon Scott. Well, Jesse is back with a new book, Pure Narco, out in paperback this week. You can get it at Amazon, wherever you buy books. But Jesse is the subject of his book with him on the show today, Luis Navia, the cocaine trafficker, whose real-life story is chronicled in Pure Narco, is on Talk is Jericho to share some of these crazy stories with us. Luis spent 25 years working as a cocaine trafficker for the deadliest Colombian and Mexican cartels. He'll share how he got involved in the drug business, how he built his transportation and distribution network to serve the cartels, and what happened the one time he met Pablo Escobar face-to-face. Luis has been kidnapped by the cartels more than once, had Easter dinner with one of the cartel assassins, and explains what it's like uh, to see his real-life friend's stories play out on the Netflix series Narcos. Lewis shares details about his own capture and arrest and reveals how he's still alive today. Unbelievable true story about drugs, money, and survival. So Luis and Jesse are standing by me. Before we get to them, reminder that Chris Jericho's Rock and Wrestling Rager at C4 Leaf Clover is setting March, uh, setting sale March 14th. We had such a blast in the triple whammy. Uh, we booked the Four Leaf Clover uh, right after on its heels. So if you want to book your cabin during the pre-sale, you'll get an exclusive photo with me and an exclusive flag. So go to ChrisJerichoCruise.com today. Sign up for the pre-sale list and uh, get your cabin before everybody else does. ChrisJerichoCruise.com to sign up for your cabin and the pre-sale list for the Four Leaf Clover uh, coming up on March 14th to the 18th, 2022 from Miami to Nassau. And the Fozzie European Tour starts later this month, November 29th in Liverpool at the famous Cavern Club. Very close to selling out. Only probably about a dozen tickets left. Manchester sold out. Newcastle, still tickets available. Glasgow and Dublin sold out. Still tickets available for Belfast, uh, Birmingham and Bournemouth. Chester, Swansea, Nottingham, London also sold out as well. Don't forget to go to FozzyRock.com, pick up some of those remaining tickets, and get your chance to see uh, Fozzie play a mini set just for you with the VIP meet and greet. All that information at FozzyRock.com. All right, time for Jesse Fink and Luis Navia. Pure Narco starts now on Talk is Jericho. So it's interesting to me that I've had uh, Jesse Fink on the show here before to talk about Bon Scott. It was a great conversation. And then I get a call that Jess is writing a new book called Pure Narcos, about one of the biggest cocaine dealers possibly ever. I don't know about that. <laughs> well, a, a huge fish in the scene. There's a lot of big ones out there. A lot of big ones. But but, but I guess the, the initial question is, Jesse, how'd you go from writing a book about Bon Scott to writing a book about Luis Navia and, and this whole cocaine industry? Well, I was down in Miami in 2015 and uh, met a few people down there who after the the book on Bond came out, you know, came to me and said, look, we know a guy in Miami who's got a great story to tell. He's been thinking about writing a book for some time. He's been talking to some people out in Hollywood and doing a treatment for his, his life story, but none of the treatments had kind of come together in the way that he'd hoped, and, and he was looking for someone to kind of uh, work with him on writing a book. So after finishing... Bon Scott, I was looking for a new project and I thought I've got nothing to lose by starting to talk to this guy. And we, we started WhatsApping me in Sydney, Lewis in, in Miami over a period of 
months really, but it, it took months for Lewis, I guess, to kind of trust me enough to kind of start telling me, you know, the deepest, darkest parts of his story. And, and when he came around to doing that, I realised that he had an actual remarkable story to tell and um, it was well worth doing. It's so interesting to me, Luis, to hear, to hear this. Was it hard after being, you know, involved in this scene for so long to then want to do a book about it and to kind of tell all these stories and tell all these tales? Is that, It seems like a pretty big decision to have to make. Well, I got arrested in 2000. In 2001, I had some kind of offer from a, a publisher in, in, in Europe about a book. But believe me, at that point, that's the last thing from my mind because I'm sitting here in prison looking at life. You know, I don't want to be talking about a book or even these prosecutors thinking I'm going to write a book. Uh, you know, I want to look as mellow and as, you know, <laughs> meager as possible. So I started debriefing. One of the agents started saying, you know, some of this stuff is really strange. We haven't heard it before. It's not what you did. It's how long you did it for. And then they had an idea but they didn't have a clear idea of the extent of it. As time went by, then one of the agents, Bob Harley, said he was he was interested in, um, in doing the book himself, that he was going to retire. And that's what he wanted to do was write the book. He never retired. He hasn't retired. So uh, he didn't do the book. And then I, a friend of mine from L.A. knew about what I had done. Or, but when he really realized what I had done, he said, man, that's worthy of a book. And uh, he passed away now. He was a film editor in Hollywood. He went to high school with me. And he heard about me going to jail. He heard me about being in some kind of weird business. He never knew the extent. Never. Nobody knew that. When he heard the extent and what happened, he said, you have to do a book. You have to do a movie. So he turned me on to a couple people, this and that. But Listen, it was a blessing to meet Jesse because not everybody can put 25 years together and kind of make sense because I had a lot of notes that I did. When Bob, Bob Harley came to me and said, you know, the thing is, I've been interviewing, I've been looking for you for 13 years. And during these 13 years, I've been going to all jails all over the United States interviewing people. Everybody wants to do a book. And these guys are only five minutes of your lifetime. And they want to do a book. So the one that should do a book is you. Said, Bob, yeah, maybe you're right. Maybe we'll do it. But uh, one thing's to do a book. And then another thing's to run into somebody like Jesse that actually did it. Believe me, I got so many shitty treatments, all these ridiculous things. I said, man, crazy. With Jesse, it came together and we established a friendship. And it was wild. You know, him in Australia, 14-hour difference. But it was fun. Jesse, how do you do that? I mean, when you're talking about putting 25 years, like Louis said, into a book, and it's different from, for example, from the Bond Scott book, because with Bond, obviously, he isn't with us anymore, but Luis is. So how how do you structure this, and, and what kind of process do you have? I would go out into the backyard and take my shirt off and uh, get a tan while talking to Louis. <laughs> and we talked for like, I don't know, two or three hours a day. And we would, you know, literally kind of start at the beginning and just go through it bit by bit. That was just a period of months, just getting down the actual kind of narrative arc of the story and getting him to, you know, open up about the various things that he'd been involved in over that, that time. So, you know, we, we went from his childhood in Cuba 
growing up in Key Biscayne in, in Miami, sort of falling into the Medellin cartel, then, you know, going down to Colombia, being a man on the run, working for various cartels down in Colombia, then his time in Mexico, Central America, and, and finally Venezuela, where he was caught. And, you know, that's one part of the story. And then the second part of the story, obviously, is him getting arrested and taken back to Florida, put in jail, cutting a deal with prosecutors, and then getting out of jail, and then adjusting to civilian life again. So there's all these, you know, there's different stages of his story. And then the other part of it was that you've got to bring in the, the stories of the law enforcement agents who, who caught him. You've got to bring in the story of his family, which is really important. Like one of the crime books that I really loved was Wise Guy, which was turned into Goodfellas. And I think the reason it resonated so much was that you felt the story of the, of the family. It wasn't so much just the crime. It right. was like how the crime affected the family. So that was like a really important thing. But it took me a long time to convince Lewis's family to open up to talk about the impact that his life in crime had had on them. But once that happened, it felt like there was like this rich kind of overlay to the rest of the story. And then, of course, you've got to bring in the history of the, the cartels, the, the war on drugs, and, you know, wrap it all up into a sort of a morality tale. So it's like this, you know, very big job bringing all these sort of disparate strands together. Mm-hmm. The thing with Lewis is he's done so many things that you could have written a 1,200-page book, you know, easily. Right. So you have to distill all that down. And the other thing, too, is that when you're writing a biography of, of someone who's still alive, you know, they have a say in what you write. It's not like Bon Scott had a say in what I wrote about him in the previous book because he's been dead 40 years. But, you know, Lewis was alive and he has a certain idea about certain aspects of his life and certain aspects of his story. And, and then I have my own views about it. So you've got to, you know, reconcile those things too. And so sometimes, and Lewis would admit this, we had some tension in, in how we were portraying him. It's a It's a difficult thing when you're, you're writing someone else's life. But it wasn't a ghost-written book. It was very much me, you know, writing the book and Lewis coming into the story with his extensive verbal kind of reminiscences about his life. So, Lewis, you mentioned that you kind of fell into this cartel. I want to hear how someone just falls in with a cartel. But before we talk about that, thank you to Echelon for supporting Talk is Jericho. I know when you're trying to reach your fitness goals, it can really help to have world-class instructors like Nicole Griffin and Michael Brown choreographing classes with music from your favorite artists. It can really help to have hundreds of thousands of people giving you an extra push as well. Echelon gives you that. Echelon's fitness app provides you thousands of live and on-demand classes with with great music from your favorite artists like Pitbull and many more. With Echelon, you can work out at any time, any day, any night, crush your fitness goals, just pick your class, climb the leaderboard, cheer each other on, and give it your all. Echelon's certified fitness instructors are supportive, engaging, and fun. They really know how to get you moving. And Echelon's full range of affordable workout equipment, including stationary bikes, smart rowers, sleek fitness screens, and the auto-folding treadmill are all connected to provide the Echelon experience. 
One membership covers a family of five. And right now, for a limited time, you can get up to $800 off MSRP. To get this exclusive account, uh, discount, text Jericho to 81818. Text Jericho to 81818 to get up to $800 off MSRP. One more time, text Jericho to 81818. Echelon, uh, you can train anytime you want, day or night. Uh, just text Jericho to 81818 and get started right now so listen jesse said that talking about the story about how you fell into the cartel how does one fall into a cartel falling into the cartel was uh basically i fell in love with a girl that was very involved with the cartel now staying and actually making that move it's because like i told jesse i was at georgetown university i had friends that were very determined and very groomed into uh, being an engineer or a doctor or a lawyer. I mean, that, that's what they wanted to do. And they, they were very sure of themselves. I didn't know what I was going to do. I just wanted to make money. I knew I wa- didn't want to work for anybody nine to five. So I was the perfect guy to fall into that. Now, I also fell into it in a great way because I meet this beautiful girl, gorgeous, sexy, exotic, everything a guy wants, everything I thought was awesome total lust that developed immediately. And then I fell in in, in a great way. And uh, she was very hooked up with the uh, Medellin cartel. So I started to ride around with her in Learjets, being present when, you know, these uh, big deals were going down. And like back then, people used to sell five kilos. When people were selling five kilos here in Miami, we were doing two, 300 kilos out West. And the thing is that her sister was married to one of the original big-time 1970s hash smugglers. Those guys were the ones that would take years to plan a smuggle, the logistics. They would buy research vessels. They were the true smugglers, those guys from out west, from San Francisco, Hawaii, that were bringing in the tie stick, the guys that were doing the, the hash out of Morocco in the 70s. Those were the original American smugglers that were awesome. These guys had a code of ethics. So while they were sitting around waiting for a a hash smuggle or something to come in from Thailand that would take months, they had nothing to do. So they had millions of dollars waiting for this dope to come in and they wanted to move it. So when we said, hey, we got this cocaine. And first thing they said is, well, uh, how much is it? And we said, well, $65,000 a kilo. I said, okay, we'll send up a hundred. So we we go, whoa, what, what? We sent up a hundred. They pay us in a week. And then they had the connections that were top notch. People here in Miami, you'd sell them five kilos. They'd pay you in fives and twenties and fifties. If you got a hundred, it was a miracle. These guys would give you suitcases, hundreds. Nothing would be missing. Amazing, amazing people. And a hundred, then two hundred, then three hundred, like nothing. We didn't know what to do with the money. You know, we'd have eighteen million dollars out west. I'd go, what are we doing here? I can't do the dope and do the money. It's getting more difficult to do the money. And that's when they set up a banking system for me out west, where I would just deliver the money out west. I'd be driving back with six, seven million dollars in it. <laughs> that's crazy. So, and then the cars were going going up with the coke and the cars coming back with the cash and Louis Navi is responsible on both ends. 
I go, it's like, wow, I needed a wrestling partner. I had to be a tag team. I needed a banker. I needed a banker. So things just got bigger and bigger. And then, you know, I bought a Merlin and I started smuggling across the Mexican border when, when not many people were doing it. Things just got bigger. And I went from uh, distributing from Miami to L.A. and San Francisco and developing this whole sales network. So then I decided to start bringing it in myself, you know, doing the, the smuggling part with planes and boats and all that kind of stuff. You know, I finally left the U.S. in 88 because I had a crew down in Arizona that got really hot. There was a big indictment. They arrested like 135 people. I said, I'm out of here. I'm, I'm not going to wait around. I mean, I'm sure somebody's going to blab out my name. So that's when I grabbed uh, and left. I left the U.S. and I went down to Colombia. I already had an apartment there. I had been going there for, for eight or nine years. All my friends were down there, on, you know, all my cartel connections. And then I started working from Colombia. What I want to ask you, Louis, is you, is you mentioned sneaking over the Mexican border with the kind of the illegal contraband. How do you do that? Was there ever any times like where there's always dogs at the border and there's... No, no, no. There's not? No, no. When I bought my planes and uh, I was still living in the U.S., I had Mexican connections. I, I would keep my planes in Burbank, California. Okay. Then I would fly them down to Cancun legally. From Cancun, I would put on a smuggling pilot who would go down to Colombia, pick up the merchandise, deliver it to a strip in Mexico. We do that three or four times. Then we back to Cancun, put on the legal pilots, and come back into Burbank and let the plane sit for a while. Now, the merchandise that was in Mexico, you could have two, 3,000 kilos over there. You know, this was 1984, 85, because before 85, all I did was receive merchandise in Miami and take it to San Francisco. You made a lot of money doing that because, you know, I used to receive at 55000 a kilo and sell it at sixty-five, So that's a lot. But the merchandise that was in Mexico was crossed over because law enforcement was being paid off, you know, Mexican law enforcement. Or the people that I worked with had smaller planes and they would fly it across and land in farms or desert strips that were in Arizona. Hmm. California, or the Mexicans had routes, you know, commercial vehicles that would cross the border at Tijuana and just bring in the, the, the merchandise. And that was all paid off. That kind of transport, the, 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 the overland transport, that was taken care of because that was bringing over 300, 400 kilos at a time. You can't risk not getting paid off. You can't lose that. So that's guaranteed. That's unbelievable. Now, Jesse, when you're hearing these stories, you know, because when I hear them, it just blows my mind. Did you feel the same way trying to kind of acclimate yourself to all of this fantastic stuff that you're hearing? Yeah. I mean, there was just so much stuff going on and over such an incredible period of time. And I think that's why Lewis's story is different to kind of any other narco is that he did it over 25 years. So, you know, you've got a Miami Vice style kind of beginning to his career and then by the end of it he's he's running you know freighters from Venezuela to Europe the last 
sort of smuggle that he was involved in was, I think, you know, in total was like something like, uh, what was it, 25 tons in the in the Venezuelan jungle? I mean, it was a shitload of things. Yeah, 25 tons. Yeah, 25 tons in the Orinoco Delta, which is a staggering amount of cocaine, and he was working for the deadliest cartel in Colombia at that point. You know, when, when Lewis was arrested, it was like, it made the New York Times. It was in all the newspapers around the world. He was on CNN, I think. You were in jail in Miami and, you know, he came on the TV, you know, in front of all of his fellow prisoners and they were like, who the hell is this guy? Who are we sitting with <laughs> having breakfast with here? Escorted out of the room and put into, a, you know, his own cell at that point. And so he was a big fish. It's amazing that up until now his story hasn't been told because, you know, we, we know, you know, the story of Barry Sewell and George Young and, you know, Max Mermelstein, but, you know, no one talks about Louis Navia uh, and his infamy as a major American uh, drug trafficker. The thing is, Chris, when I met Bia, she was hooked up at the highest levels of the Medellin cartel and she was like a little golden goose. Very well protected. Nobody knew about her. And we kept it that way. And we were moving what people weren't moving back then, two, 300, 400 kilos a month back in 1979, 80, 81. And it was done like just business-like. But that's because Bia had these amazing people on the other end that had been smugglers for years, real professionals. You know, we had a perfect, it was like all the planets were aligned. We were able to move all this merchandise. Now, when I go back to Colombia, I'm hooked up with the Medellin cartel. What do you want? So then quality brings quality. Then, you know, the people we had in California introduced me to some great people in Mexico. I mean, who did we get introduced to in Mexico? The Arellano cartel, the Juarez cartel. We were dealing at the highest levels. So, you know, you don't send these people 25 kilos. You don't send them 65 kilos. You send them 6,500 kilos. It was business enterprise. There's no room for mistakes. You know, you're not sending 65 kilos and you give 20 to Pedro and 20 to Jose and they cross it on their on their backs and across the Rio Grande. No, this is 6,000 kilos. You put it on commercial vehicles. Everybody's paid off. I mean, huge. Uh, we used to work in Cancun with the federales, directly with the chief federale. He made sure nobody with us. Mm -hmm. When you're working those volumes, now everybody knows who's behind you. It's not like they're going to kill you. Right. I'm owing $15 million. So if some idiot kidnaps me or kills me, now he owes $15 million. Yeah, right. And that's why this drug business is just... You know, the way they're going about it, they're trying to stop it. They're never going to stop it because there's more money being invested. It's like any business. You inject capital in it and it grows, becomes stronger. Every year, there's more and more amounts. Like back in 1979, we used to airdrop 500 kilos in the Bahamas. That's a big load. Right now, they're shipping out of the Pacific side of Mexico 20,000 kilos. Like boom, 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 boom. Wow. The billions of dollars in the U.S., you think they're going back to Colombia or back to Mexico through exchange houses? No. They use the same tunnels that they use to bring the coke across to bring the bulk money. They grab and they have $900 billion in Mexico. 
They put it in a container, ship it to China. When it gets to China, that container gets open. They pull out the $900 million. It's not illegal money. In China, money's money. And that money gets turned into paper cups, sewing machines, whatever, and gets sold all over the world and goes back to Mexico. It's huge. So let's talk about how you were supplied, Luis, and we'll get into all that after I help out all the sexy beasts, talk as Jericho listeners with their gift giving this holiday season. With all the shipping delays and fulfillment issues expected for the holidays, Christmas shopping has come earlier than ever. Luckily, Steven Singer is giving every other jeweler out there another reason to hate him. Steven Singer Jewelers has the number one gift this holiday, diamond stud earrings. And Steven is fully stocked with the most beautiful, best value, real diamond studs anywhere. Choose a great pair of Anita diamond stud earrings for under $270. Sound familiar? Well, that's because it was the same price last year. Steven is not jacking up prices like everyone else. He just offers the perfect price every single day. No sales, no discounts, no BS. Steven's real diamond studs are flawless to the eye, near colorless, and come with his famous full-value lifetime trade-in guarantee. You can trade up your diamond studs anytime and receive exactly what you paid towards a new pair. And all with an unbeatable full 100-day, 100% money-back guarantee, making it no risk for shopping early for the holiday. Go now to IHateStevenSinger.com. Always with fast and free shipping. Steven Singer Jewelers, one place, one price. That's IHateStevenSinger.com. When you're talking about, you know, 6,000 kilos and, and you know, 20,000 kilos, where where do you get that type of amount of cocaine from? Is there like warehouses that are making it or that's a lot of cocaine? Most of it is cultivated. It's crop, just like anything. And you got a lot of people doing it. You know, the Medellin cartel wasn't Pablo Escobar. The Medellin cartel was in Negro Galeano, Kiko Moncada. Pablo Correa, the Ochoas, all these groups. And they're each exporting 10,000 kilos a month. The Cali cartel was made up of five or six major players and then 20 smaller players and then 40 even smaller players. But it's a crop. That's why I told the U.S. government when they caught me and they said, you know, what do you think we should do to stop the drug business? You really want to stop the drug business? Are you sure you want to do that? I'll tell you how you do it. What's your budget, your yearly budget? Eight billion, 10 billion? Take that 10 billion and buy all the cocaine that's out there. Don't let the Colombians buy it. Right. Corner the market. Like United Fruit used to do in Central America. They wanted the price of banana to go up. They buy all the banana. There was no banana for nobody else. Then they'd hold it, boom. Now, when you do that, you go out there and you buy all that cocaine, there's no cocaine for anybody. Now you're going to have to have a buyer's rep like any normal American company. Who's going to be your buyer's rep down there? He better be some bad mother because everybody's going to want to kill him. But you can do it. Now, think about it. Cocaine, it feeds the economy. There's a lot of people that make a living off selling cocaine. Some of those guys cannot be like me and go sell windows or go into construction business. They want to stay in the criminal element. If they don't have any cocaine to, to sell, they still need an income. So they may travel into your neighborhood, steal your wife's jewelry, steal your car, home invade your ass. And you've got a problem because drugs is an underground economy that exists. There's a high volume of the population that lives off that. 
They contribute to the economy. They buy shoes and they buy shirts and they buy cars. It's complicated. The best thing to do is legalize it. Well, I mean, there's so much to talk about there, but Jesse, once again, talking with, when you're talking to Luis and all these experiences he's had, obviously he's been used to this for, for 25 years. These are some bad dudes that he's dealing with, with Pablo Escobar and all of his lieutenants and colonels and that sort of thing. Were there some stories that, that you heard that you just couldn't believe? Well, one, one, he was kidnapped by a Colombian drug lord called Rasguño which means scratch. He, he was so named for the scar on his face. Anyone in Colombia will be able to tell you who Rasguño he is. He was the most sort of feared capo after um, Pablo Escobar. And Lewis was kidnapped, I think, for pretty much 20 days and kept in a house in rural Colombia. And he had to come up with, I think it was $5 million, Lewis, was it? Yeah. To, to settle a debt that Rasguño had to that Lewis owed him. And then there was another story, which was pretty remarkable, which was when he was kidnapped by a Mexican drug lord called Metro in Cancun. And Lewis was accused of sort of working in Metro's territory without permission. And he was taken out to a, a crocodile uh, moat and sort of dangled over this crocodile infested lagoon and threatened uh, to be fed alive to crocodiles. Lewis, you want to you expand upon that? Well, number one, I worked for, for Rasguño and he was my friend. We became friends because he was the way he was. I was the way I am. But we clicked. In this business, you got to click because either you click or, you know, you shouldn't even do, do business. You know, the time clock's going to run out on you. What happened is that I was in Cancun and I was working for him. And there's some rumors that were spread. And they were saying that I was talking bad about Rasguño and this and this. And rumors are the worst in, in our business. Rumors can get you really killed. So they told me, listen, you better not even go back to Colombia because uh, they want to pick you up because of this, this and that. I said, hey, none of that is true. And uh, I'm going to Colombia right away. I took a plane and I went down and I, and I showed up at his uh, office. You know, they, they did keep me for 21 days. The thing is that when a guy like that grabs you all throughout history and in Colombia, uh, what you can beg for or hope for is a quick death because when somebody like that grabs you, most probably you're not going to come back. It's just the way it is. Whether you're innocent or not innocent, you don't come back because they don't leave loose ends. Mm -hmm. You don't know, you know, we let Lewis go and tomorrow he makes 20 million and he uses the 20 million to come after us. But he knew I was not a violent type. Right. After everything was settled, they let me go. The thing is that 20 days thinking you could die any moment, it takes a, a, a toll on you. Absolutely. You know, my wife came and picked me up when they let me go, which is something that they don't let anybody go. And the thing with Metro was, you know, I had gotten to Cancun. I had a, a small load in Belize. I had 800 kilos in Belize. That was for him. And I got to Cancun and I went looking for him and I couldn't find him. So I ran into one of his buddies that did the transport to Houston and we started to play pool, and I lost $250,000 playing pool. When he picks me up, I tell him, Metro picks me up, says, what the fuck are you doing here now? You didn't tell me you were here. I know you're working under the radar. You're trying to sneak one past me. I said, what? Are you nuts? Last night, I was playing pool with he. I lost 250000 I told him the load was for you, and I'm trying to tell this guy this, and this guy's violent. I mean, this guy, Cancun in the daytime is 
people having drinks on the beach at night, heads were being cut off because that's the biggest port of entry for cocaine wow. in Mexico. You had boats coming in all night long. So I'm dialing this guy, and this guy's hungover. I, I, it doesn't matter if I drink or whatever. I go play tennis early in the morning. But this guy was hungover. I said, man, what a time not to pick up the phone. This little theme park or something that was abandoned. It was a lagoon. Metro used to keep crocodiles, alligators there. And I said, oh, my God, here we are two minutes away from this place. And then we pulled up right to the crocodile pit. And suddenly I said, you know, Metro, you call him. Maybe if he sees your number. Sure enough, calls him. The guy answers. Metro tells him, I got your buddy here. You call Ocho. We're going to, all we're going to, as a matter of fact, as a souvenir, all I'm going to send you is his white tennis shoes. So what are you talking about? No, okay, I, we're going to throw him into the crowd. No, 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 no. Wait a minute. He owes me $250,000 from a pool game. Don't do that. <laughs> the guy couldn't believe it. He looked at me like, wow, you're crazier than I am. And it's like that moment where you bond and you look at each other. You know, he said, man, this guy's nuts. I thought I was nuts. This guy's nuts. So that saved me. Like anybody would say, losing $250,000 in a pool game. No, that's the best thing that ever happened to me. And then we just clicked. From then on, it was, you know, smooth sailing. Although I kind of stayed away from Cancun because I knew this guy's too volatile. He, you know, and I had a good thing there. That night, you know, I'm... I got back to the room. I, I looked like shit. My wife tells me, wow, that must have been a hell of a tennis game. They hit me with the AK-47 on the side, and uh, they pulled my hair out, you know. And uh, my wife looked at me and said, man, what kind of tennis game was that? So I took her, went to dinner, full on everything, on the, you know, champagne. From then on, you know, I had Metro on my side in Cancun. So what more do you want? It was uh, a close call, to say the least. Both times. It was, uh, you know, very close. And you mentioned that most guys don't get let go. And, and what was the reason why you got let go? They said because you were nonviolent. But what does that have to do with anything? You know what? That has a lot to do with it. Number one, Rasguño's a fair man. Okay. He realized it was a rumor. He realized it was all bullshit. Nothing about that man is bullshit. Nothing about him is bullshit. If I would have been a violent guy, forget about it. Then it could have been bullshit, but then I got to screw you up just on the fact that you're a violent guy. And when you make 20 million, you're going to come after me. And I don't need that headache just on doing good business. He knew I was not a violent guy. That, that's something I would never do. He let me go. That's I mean, there were bets out in Colombia if I was coming back or not. But I would do anything for him because I, I have a deep uh, love and appreciation for him. What happened was just a rumor. We never worked again. We had a great friendship and he's an amazing guy. Back then in Colombia, he, after Pablo, he was the one that took over. He took over the Northern Valley cartel. They were a force to contend with. All right, all you cat lovers out there, I've got some big, big news for you. Our friends at Arm & Hammer Cat Litter have an amazing new contest, the Unsung Heroes Giveaway. It honors staff and volunteers at animal shelters, all those unsung heroes who go above and beyond to help perfectly imperfect shelter cats by meeting their physical, medical, and emotional needs. I'm giving a big round of applause to, uh, of my own to them right now. Here I go. We adopted a shelter cat in my family, so I know how great the staff and volunteers really are. 
Arm & Hammer's Unsung Heroes giveaway has huge prizes like $30,000 for shelters, a year of free kitty litter, awards for compassion and creativity, and a chance to be named Advocat of the Year. See what they did there? Advocat of the Year. But hurry, because the contest ends November 20th, so enter now at FelineGenerousHeroes.com. That's FelineGenerousHeroes.com. F-E-L-I-N-E, GenerousHeroes.com. So let me ask you this, Lisa. You mentioned you get kidnapped twice. I mean, after the first time, was that not enough to kind of maybe start to sway you that maybe you should get out of this business? Well, actually, I got kidnapped three times. But we, the first time, we, we'll talk about that later. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that was by the gorillas. But no, I would, Chris, I would never get out of it because that was my business. I started it. I loved it. I had a thrill for it. You have good business days and bad business days, but that was my business. I was never going to get out of it. Either I was going to die or get arrested. And why would you never get out of it? Just the thrill of the job? Because it's my business. It's what I loved. I loved smuggling. I loved the people I worked with. They were crazy psychopaths. You know, you can watch the, the narco series, all those narco series. Those were all my friends. It's not like I worked through a broker that knew a guy that knew the Pablo or Negro Galliano or Rasguño or any of these guys. No, 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 no. It was one on one. And it was a trip working with those guys to be able to pick up the phone and get one of those guys on the other line. I established a business model that really worked. It was just me. It was my persona. Now, did I look like a drug dealer? Did I act like one? No, because my deal is to be a logistics guy and make sure the merchandise goes from Colombia to New York or Paris or Madrid, Canada. So, you know, I, I, I had to keep up a business facade so I don't get hot. I'm no use to anybody being hot. And, and, and Lewis had, you know, seven different passports. They were all sort of variations of his name. And he had a, um, a tailor in Mexico City who, mo- you know, monogrammed his shirts with his initials. And so <laughs> he thought it was more expensive to get his shirt changed to different initials. So he always kept it as LN. And I didn't want to show up, you know, as John Smith and on my shirt it says LN, you know. But those are just little things. But <laughs> see, I kept the family life. I mean, it was 25 years. Think about it. Most guys, uh, you know, Barry Seal, what, he had to run for nine years, the other guy for eight years. It just became a lifestyle. And I kept my eco businesses. I kept my farms in Costa Rica, my coffee business, the uh, latex business in Mexico. I kept up these little fronts, the sugar business. Jesse, let me ask you a question when you're writing this book. And obviously, I mean, it seems like you and Luis have a pretty good relationship. But how do you write this book? Because without kind of glorifying the whole trade, but still you want to tell the story of, the, of this guy. What's the line that you have to walk for that? I mean, that's the thing is that, yeah, we're talking about some you know, some really low people here. And Lewis was involved with some pretty nasty individuals. So that's you, you've got to... Certainly be aware and cognizant of that when you're writing it and not glorify it. But I can tell you it's extremely difficult when he's telling you really entertaining stories. And there's a reason why, you know, Narcos and other sort of drug-related series like 
Ozark and Breaking Bad are so popular yeah. because they're just fascinating. And these people in lives, I guess, you know, we don't aspire to lead, but we find them fascinating. And certainly, you know, writing the book, I was kind of sucked into that world, into this vortex of, you know, sort of twisted morality. And these guys, they operate sort of with completely different belief system, you know, to you and I. Chris, let me interject something. Sure. See, that he, he spoke about morality, and I saw that, that that was an issue Jesse was having, and it's obvious. But see, I never saw that angle. In the early days in Miami, I hung out with people that were actually assassins. They were involved in the coke business, but they came from the old guard in Medellin before Pablo. They were actually assassins. They were killing people. As a matter of fact, one of them had a hit on a police officer here in Miami. And I just had lunch with that police officer four days ago. And this is a guy that my friend wanted to hit. He's a police officer. So I never judged them. I just never saw that part of them. I knew who they were, but to me, it, it was just business, and it, it never, I never judged them. I don't know why. Maybe it was strange. Mario, for example, here's this assassin living in Miami. We end up living in the same building. It's Easter. He's got nowhere to go. I invite him to my house for Easter dinner. This guy, he leaves for New York. I leave for San Francisco. I'm in San Francisco. My mother calls me up and says, hey, have you opened a newspaper lately? And I go, no, not really. He says, should I open one? She says, yeah. Says which one? I said, don't don't matter. Anyone, anyone is fine. There's a picture of Mario hanging out of a window of an Amtrak train with a machine gun in it. There was a siege in in North Carolina in I think it was 1982, 83. A woman and a child were killed, and 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 Lewis's friend Mario, the assassin, was was completely high on coke and killed these people. Ended up in a siege. And this was Mario, and he was my friend. You know, the morality part, I never, I never, to me, I was involved in a business and this was part of what existed in the businesses. It's like the uh, pharmaceutical salesman that goes to visit the doctor. Does he think about the morality part of how many people are being killed by the shitty pharmaceutical? Or how about the liquor salesman? Do you want something that kills more people than liquor? I mean, it's a thin line, Chris, you know. Right. I think it's ugly because it's illegal. If it was legal, it wouldn't be that ugly. Well, you you were asking, you know, how I dealt with the morality part of it. I guess the important thing was bringing in the perspectives of the, the law enforcement agents who were working to bring him down. You know, the interesting thing is that Lewis, you know, he had friendships with these guys. Like um, we have a, a DEA agent called Eric Kolbinski who wrote the forward to the book. He's a great guy. lives up in Tampa, really good friend of Lewis. And, and Bob Harley, who was the customs agent who hunted Lewis, he also lives up in Tampa. And, and, you know, these guys are friends, but, you know, they can also sort of stand aside and, and sort of they've got a very different kind of belief system about, you know, Lewis's sort of guilt and, you know, they believe in the war on drugs, where, you know, Lewis's perspective is completely different. And certainly, you know, despite their friendship, you know, they, they make it quite clear that they they believe that, you know, what he was involved in was, was very wrong and that drugs are wrong. And you only need to look around, you know, the southern United States to see the sort of devastation of fentanyl on, on small communities to see that these drugs cause an inordinate amount of damage. 
that's why if you legalize it, you may not have that fentanyl situation. Because why should you go buy something that has fentanyl when you can buy the real thing at a better price? What I did was very bad, Chris. No doubt about it. Very bad. I do not recommend it to anybody. I do not condone it. I think it's bad. But I was just sucked into it, and I loved it, and I went for it for 25 years. But I think we can clean it up. That's for sure. Were you ever witness to, to people being executed and people being shot and murdered and that sort of thing? No, I once saw somebody being waterboarded and I was just brought into that scene and I said, listen, this isn't me. This isn't my side of the game here. Gotcha. Gotcha. You know, heard about some other situations and it's it's not a nice business that I did it and I treated it like a business enterprise. And it was like for me to move 5,000 kilos uh was no problem. You asked me to move five kilos. I don't know what the hell to do with it. Yeah. Probably end up snorting it. (laughs) Everyone likes a great deal, like savings, markdowns, and lunch specials. But when it comes to car insurance, we know the right place. State Farm offers surprisingly great rates for your ride. Your friends don't have to have a connection or call in a favor. State Farm offers options like insuring your ride and your home, getting you great rates on both. Now that's a deal. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Call or go to statefarm.com for a quote today. Jesse, were you ever worried about your own personal safety? Like when you start writing these stories and publishing a, a book like this? Is that something that, that, that thought about you, especially now that there's the book is getting wider release and all the press that you're doing? Yeah, Lewis made it very clear, I guess, early on, there were certain individuals that we shouldn't write about in a disparaging way, that it wasn't worth going there, that they still were very much, you know, powerful figures that you don't fuck with. Right. I certainly was very, very cautious about what I said about them or how, you know, Lewis talked about them. And these people might be in jail, but, you know, anyone can get you at any time. Of course. So, yeah, I was very, very cognizant of that and didn't want to kind of upset anyone. And, you know, we had a lot of people kind of advising us on what not to talk about. But, look, you know, a lot of these people are dead, so... Mm. You know, it was okay to talk about them, but then again, they've got families, cousins, brothers and cousins. So, you know, you don't insult anyone. And certainly that's a big thing in Latin American culture too. How about for you, Luis? Was this something like, I mean, and I want to talk about how you were able to kind of change your life around and get away from all this. Is there still kind of some residual thoughts when you write a book and all the things that you're talking about that someone's not going to like it? That's always going to happen. Somebody's not going to like it. Am I going to get whacked? I don't think so. I've been anonymous for so many years. I got into my construction business. I didn't tell anybody. Just my close friends knew what had happened to me, but my, nobody in my construction business really knows my past. I don't know. Is it going to hurt me? You know, it is my business. It is my daytime job. It's my bread and butter. I can't just say, you know, listen, I'm going to stop working in construction. You know, I don't have that much saved up. At the same time, some crazy may wake up someday and say, what the hell? It's Whack Lewis. Right. But it's you're losing your anonymity, and that's a factor for me. You know, it's a strong pill to swallow. You know, my family tells me, listen, it was your life. Whether you're proud of it or not, you did it, and that was you. You have an opportunity to put it in writing, 
you completely changed your life. You did a whole 180. Yeah, write about it because, you know, what you did is not done every day. And uh, what you're doing now to be able to handle, you know, your ups and downs every day, you know, still loving life the way you do, you know, that's interesting and write about it. So my family gave me the green light. Did you uh, ever have any personal dealings with Pablo Escobar? I met him once and it was at Pablo Correa's farm. We had just airdropped some merchandise into the uh, Arizona desert and some kilos hit some cactuses and there was some thorns in the kilos. And while we were at uh, Pablo Correa's ranch, he came up with his whole entourage of people. Pablo told me it wasn't really about the kilos with the thorns in it. He was something else he had to deal with. But then uh, at the end of the conversations, he said, you know, try, try to avoid the kilos and thorns. Cocaine and thorns don't mix. And he left. <laughs> Very mild-mannered guy. I worked with all his associates. That's how he came about. He was... Pablo Correa was a very, very high-level associate. Uh, they say that back in the 80s, probably Pablo Correa had more cocaine in the U.S. than Pablo did. Hmm. And uh, Negro Galeano, I worked with him for many years. Mickey Ramirez for many years. These are all Pablo uh, high-level associates. Uh, sure. And then when he died, I went and worked uh, with Cali for a while. And then I worked with Northern Valley. Sometimes I worked with all of them together. And that's something that not, not too many people were able to pull off, working with two groups at the same time. How did you eventually get captured? Well, I was living in Europe and I was buying these boats and we were, I was living in Greece and we had our shipping office in Greece and we were, you know, doing the, the whole freighter thing and had the whole freighter company front as a legit business. So we bought two freighters and the guys in Colombia wanted me to travel to Colombia because they wanted me to explain to them exactly where we were going to put the statues on these freighters. I didn't really want to cross the Atlantic. I really didn't want to go back, but I did. I went back to Venezuela. As a, when I went back to Venezuela, the office down there had already been infiltrated and uh, they were waiting for some guy from Greece, but I showed up. And at that point it was all over because they had a, an infiltrated guy inside. And he was actually working mostly in the Venezuelan side of the office. And uh, he was there because most of our action was there. We were using the border with Venezuela, which is the Orinoco River Delta, which is a huge area, as where we would stash all the merchants and then feed the ships that were going from Venezuela to Europe. So... I got made. They didn't know who I was. They were expecting a Greek. A Mexican shows up. Who's this Mexican? They didn't know. So they took a glass with my fingerprints on it. Boom. They ran it back to Miami and it all came back to this DUI I got in Miami in 1980 or 1979. I go, Jesus. And they said, bingo. This is Luis Navia. Call him in. And that was it. He was undone by, a, you know, fingerprints on a glass. Right. <laughs> Jesse, when you were writing the book, and obviously it takes a while to get Luis's trust, how much did it take to get his family's trust and his friends? I know you had to talk to everybody that he knew as well. Uh, yeah, that was a hugely difficult and sensitive sort of thing because, you know, they've had fairly anonymous lives. I mean, completely anonymous lives in, in Miami. No one knows that they're connected to the drug business in any way. Luis's son is a, you know, a sweet boy and his daughter's a great young girl. His daughter, in particular, 
really held out right until the end. Mm. It wasn't until I went to Miami and had a family dinner with them that I think that she decided that she would sort of open up. And she did right at the end. So, you know, it took a great deal of time. But I think it's sort of one of the heroes of the story really is his, his ex-wife, Patricia, who after Lewis was arrested in 2000, she went down to Colombia and she sort of went around for 10 days sort of meeting the heads of the cartels, getting their assurance that nothing was going to happen to Lewis if he cooperated with the U.S. government. A big part of this story really is about how the U.S. criminal justice system works at that level of the cartels, and it, it really comes down to cooperation. We, we see, you know, these big drug lords, you know, getting poor sentences, and that's usually because they cooperate with the U.S. government, and the whole system relies on cooperation. So, I mean, that's a big part of the story, and, and, and that would account for, you know, most of it. The last sort of fifth of the book is really about, you know, lawyers and their nexus with the cartels and, and law enforcement. And so it's a big issue in, in American uh, law enforcement. Trade pros, whether you specialize in service or new construction, Ferguson knows firsthand how much work goes into a long day on the job which is why we're committed to offering the products and solutions to get every job done right. With over a thousand locations, an unmatched selection of specialty products, tools, and supplies, our pro pickup and Samer next day delivery, you can trust that doing business with Ferguson will be the easiest part of your hard day's work. Visit ferguson.com to find a counter location near you. Do you feel, uh, Luis, that getting arrested basically saved your life? Would you say that? Without a doubt, because I was in Maracaibo. I was going to cross the border to talk to uh, the Mellizos, the head of the cartel organization that I worked with, and explain to them, you know, Mark, we lost 25 tons. <laughs> so we had to make it up. And I had a plan of how to make it up already. I, I had other ships I, I was buying. I had other clients, uh, so on and so forth. But we didn't really know how hot it was. You know, at that point, if I would have gotten across they would have turned up the volume to the next level and uh, I wouldn't have survived the chase, uh, the stress. I think I would have died either, the most probably from a heart attack or something. The stress, too much, too much. Right. Uh, so it was a blessing to get arrested and I would have never seen my family again. It was getting tougher and tougher to survive on this being on the lamb. Life, it was getting tough. And then after this happened, after the 25 tons being lost, it would have really been tough. And well, the point is, everybody got arrested sooner or later. Within a year, everybody in the organization was either dead or arrested. How were you able to turn your life around then? Was it hard as a drug cartel higher up to change your life? Chris, the thing is, this is a Colombian business. Colombians are now Mexicans. But the Colombians set the pace. And in 1998, they had a meeting with the DEA in Panama, the big heads of the cartel. They started talking to the DEA about ways to lessen their penalties, ways to lessen their time, how to get rid of indictments, how to ease it that they don't do 25 years, that they do five or seven or eight. So this cooperation was already in the air. So I was fortunate to be arrested in 2000. This meeting took place in 98. And in 98, it was already established that the DA was willing to smooth things out. 
with cooperation. A lot of people didn't even do any time. They turned themselves in. They kept working. I didn't want to do that. I was happy to be arrested. And my wife went down there. They gave her the okay. They said, listen, we're all in the same hot water. Sooner or later, we're all going to have to deal with the same thing. Just tell them to deal with it and try to get out as soon as possible. So I was given, let's say, a green light. But I was caught in a time that the air of cooperation already existed. Back in the 80s, that didn't happen. Back in the 80s, everybody was hiring defense attorneys that were going to take it to trial. Right. And you'd get 35 years. Now, in the year 2000, everybody was paying $5 million, but to a defense attorney that's going to do a plea agreement and get you five, seven, eight years. But the Colombians set the pace. In 98, they opened the door and set the pace to cooperation. DEA loved it because how else are they going to find out so much about something in two hours? Sitting down with me, they found out more than 10 years of police work. How much money do you think you made in the business? Well, remember, I, I never really owned merchandise, like 5,000 kilos. If I Maybe I owned 200. I charged for transport. So maybe if I made $100 million, something like that, uh, but I didn't make billions. <laughs> A hundred million is not too bad. I'll tell you that. Well, I didn't keep it all. You know, it's, it's, you know, it was an expensive lifestyle. Oh, sure. I didn't keep uh, not even a tenth of it. You know, it's just very reckless, Chris. Yeah. You say to yourself, how is it possible to spend like five million dollars in a year and you don't even know what you spent it on? I don't know. It happened. It's crazy. Last couple of questions, Jesse, what, when you look back at writing this book and it's, it's, there's so much to it. What did you really learn like about the whole business that you've delved into? And like, what are your overall thoughts once you finish this book and get a chance to kind of read over it a few times? You know, Lewis is, is right in that, you know, when he says he just treated it like any other business. And I think Lewis is a great organizer. I've, I've seen him at his work sites in Miami. He could have done anything. You know, he had an education where he could have had a car dealership or a McDonald's franchise or, or done anything, but he chose cocaine. And he just treated it like a business, and it is a business, you know, and it's just it's just got these sort of very colourful, exotic elements to it that make it fascinating. And, you know, obviously violence is part of that. But, you know, fortunately Lewis's career sort of managed to stay out of, you know, the most violent kind of parts of that industry and and he made a name for himself by being nonviolent and i guess that's why we're talking to him now if he was a violent sort of drug trafficker we wouldn't have anything to do with him that said you know i think lewis you know he struggles with you know his guilt for being involved in this industry and and certainly that was the thing that we talked about a lot is that we're going to bring out this book you know we need to see how you're sort of emotionally and, you know, mentally sort of processing your involvement in this industry and, and, and what is your level of contrition for it. And that was really important to bring out. And so what's really interesting about Lewis is that, you know, I think he has a, he has a great deal of nostalgia for his time in the drug business. He said to you earlier that he was sort of addicted to the adrenaline of it, but he's also dealing with adjusting to civilian life after 25 years in the drug business and, you know, finding it a bit of a come down from, from what he was involved in. So it's sort of this fascinating kind of study in a person who had every opportunity 
you know, get ahead in, in sort of normal civilian life in the United States, but chose a completely different path. Lewis, do you have any regrets about any of the stuff that you've, that you've been through? Yes, I do. Uh, number one is, you know, the suffering I caused my family. You know, my mother was worried about me. Did she know what you did, what you were doing? Yeah, not at the beginning, but later on, yeah, when I was in, she kind of knew and, you know, was never spoken about. Regret is uh, not having quit earlier after I had my first child, because that's the big crime. Thank God nothing happened. But, you know, I should have stayed in the business after I had my first child, my daughter. That's very irresponsible. I regret being so reckless with my money. I regret not being more disciplined. You know, at the time that I was doing it, I just, it was my business. You know, it was like transporting sugar, coffee, whatever. And actually, there was a lot of bad associated with it. I never thought of that. I had no time to think of that. I was too busy doing what I was doing. The last I should have ever gotten involved in this is me. I mean, I went to Georgetown University. I came from a rich family. But then again, I met this girl, I fell in love, and the first time I saw any money was $6.5 million. And money was always a big driving force to me. And then, I, you know, when I see 6.5 million, I said, this is better than rock and roll. <laughs> so money became a big driving factor in my life. Is there really any end to the war on drugs? I mean, you had a couple ideas as far as buying all the cocaine, all that sort of thing. Is there any solution to trying to end this? The solution is legalizing it. Legalizing it so the drug itself finds its balance in the market price-wise. People now do not have to get into a criminal situation to buy it because there's a lot of users that are doing time because they're buying for their habit. Okay, so you decriminalize it. You tax it. Hopefully the politicians don't steal the money and they put it in health benefits, educational benefits, welfare benefits. But when you legalize it, that makes it even tougher on the bad guys. The bar goes up. Now they can't be putting fentanyl in it. You know, when you legalize it, the competition becomes a lot tougher. Mm -hmm. Like liquor. If you drink liquor, you know, I don't buy liquor from a guy that makes it in his bathtub. I go to a liquor store and I buy it. The government taxes it. I hope it goes to some good. But if we continue like this, it's just going to get nastier, weirder, worse. It's not working. I mean, if you told me, hey, Lewis, you know what? The war on drugs, it's really worked. I mean, drug consumption has gone down. They're exporting a lot less from Mexico, from Colombia. But no, the complete opposite. So you legalize it and the U.S. comes in. I think it would be a better situation. This is the last question for you, Jesse. Is there a movie in this book? Yeah, absolutely. I think it could be a new season of Narcos for sure. <laughs> the interesting thing is it's, it's quite funny. I mean, Lewis is quite a – he's a completely unusual character. If you met him in person, you would never in a million years suspect that he was involved in what he was involved in. He looked like a completely normal guy. And that's, I guess, the, the fascinating thing about him for me is that, you know, Lewis could have done anything. It's just that he chose the baddest industry in the world. That he's still here sort of to tell his story is pretty remarkable. You know, for, for someone to survive three kidnapping and work with the people that he worked with, who were, the, you know, the baddest people in Mexico and Colombia, and still be here, you know, with his sense of humour, I think is 
just amazing. Well, it is a hell of a story, and it's a very interesting book. I'm glad I got a chance to talk to you guys today. And it's, uh, like I said, it's something that, that when you read about it, you can't believe it, but you lived it, Louis. So uh, it's, it's very cool to hear your, your, your tales, for sure. Well, thank you, Chris. It's been great being on, great meeting you. I hope you enjoy the book, and all the best. Thank you, guys. Thanks, Chris. Thank you, Chris. 